Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, spicing up summer. I have recipes for every day to share with you, chef's insight to make those dishes come alive with flavor and culinary conversation that I hope will make you hungry. I dish on stellar food, wine, drinks, health, travel, and living the best life. And I share it all at chefjamie.com. And on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. In fact, this week there are a few things you will not want to miss posted on my website, like the weekly dish, my grilled quail with spicy plum glaze. It is so fabulously full of flavor. And if you haven't cooked with quail before, I will tell you, it is really a decadent, delicious poultry. And the glaze itself is excellent on pork. Oh, and it makes a great dipping sauce for Asian appetizers as well. You'll find a cocktail you'll love, a spiked strawberry lemonade made refreshingly sweet by summer's best strawberries. Ooh, and a zucchini caponata, a fresh summer lemon pie, and so much more. So check it out, chefjamie.com. Now, seeing that it is summer, hot dogs, hamburgers, and hopefully the gourmet variety are on your radar, and so therefore, ketchup is on your patio table. Now, the tomato ketchup that you know and love is a wholly American invention, and I was reading a really interesting piece this past week all about ketchup. I happen to love what I call unnecessary dinner party conversation. Uh, also known as food trivia. And ketchup itself, before it was made from tomatoes, which are native to the Americas, was actually made from offbeat ingredients like walnuts and oysters and uh, pickled fish brine, all of them common ingredients and used across Asia. Now, the sauce itself worked its way across several continents, and it arrived in Philadelphia in the 18th century. And it was um, sort of a rough sauce made from unripe tomato scraps. But in 1876, Henry J. Hines, and we thank you, Mr. Hines, perfected the recipe that bears his name, which still to this day is the number one ketchup on the market. And if you've bought Heinz ketchup, then you are one of the 650 million bottles a year that were sold. Now, Thanks to the artisan food movement, ketchup has come a long way, baby. And so I thought I would dish on how to make ketchup just one step better. Now, you'll find competitors in the ketchup aisle now. There are gourmet versions popping up everywhere. But as far as I'm concerned, why not make it that much better by making it yourself? Because your summer hot dog or hamburger is going to get totally new treatment if you design a signature ketchup that's full of flavor and fits your taste profile. And by the way, it is super easy to make. I call it a dump recipe because you put all the ingredients into your food processor or blender and you blend it till smooth and then you simmer it in a pot over medium-low heat just to allow the flavors to meld and bloom together. Now, for flavor inspiration, you can jack up your ketchup by adding curry powder. I've even seen bananas added for sweetness. And personally, I add chipotle chilies in adobo sauce because I like the heat. 
Even fresh blackberries make for a delicious blackberry ketchup. Now, I have an all-natural and very simple homemade ketchup recipe that you will make in your kitchen, by the way, uh, that kids and adults will um, adore. And it's based with um, tomato paste, and then it has apple cider vinegar and some garlic powder, onion powder, a little bit of honey in place of the traditional corn syrup, some molasses, salt, and then some dried spices. And I will post that recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So please follow and become a friend at Chef Jamie Gwen. And all you do is, again, you blend all the ingredients together. I like to simmer it for about 10 to 15 minutes so that the flavors really bloom. And then you cool it down and refrigerate it and then serve it as you like. But if you are trying to duplicate the Heinz flavor, which by the way, I have a quick tip. If you um, have ever struggled to get the thick stuff out of the bottle, you know, the Heinz bottle as opposed to the squeeze, you never want to pound on the backside like a maniac. Did you know that there is an embossed 57, the number 57 on the neck of every bottle? And if you give a good smack to the 57, it is appropriately placed there, embossed on the bottle, because it runs an air bubble from that top part of the bottle to the bottom, and your ketchup will come out swimmingly. But then, of course, you want to make it all natural and better and healthy and fresh and homemade, right? So I have a secondary recipe that includes tomato paste and vinegar, water, sugar, salt, a couple of spices, but does use corn syrup, which is the traditional method for Heinz ketchup, and that too I will post on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And when you make your own signature ketchup, I want to know what it is that you put in. What is your secret ingredient? You can always email me direct, jamie at chefjamie.com. And then, of course, since I know you tune in to gain culinary intelligence, it is now time for food news to keep you in the know on the wide world of food. So, what happened this past week in this wonderful world of gastronomy that we all live in? Well, the Dubai-based airline that is Emirates is elevating their airplane food. I mean, seriously elevating it. They have re-engineered dining at 30,000 feet, and it is surely a feat. Emirates came out with some really interesting statistics this past week um, that really, I will say, explained the reasons that prevented airlines in the past from providing a high-quality dining experience while you are 30,000 feet up. And it is all about the cabin pressure and the low humidity, which they say they have proven affects flavor profiles. So they are now working to redesign every aspect of their culinary system. So when you fly Emirates next, they have created customized menus for their 155,000 daily meals through research and the ability for those that are flying to taste sweet and salty when at high elevations. Now, mind you, I understand Emirates Airlines is for um, those that are privileged. And so we might not all get to fly it. But I think it's really interesting to know that what they proved is that you really don't taste sweet and salt very well while in the air. And 
that's why they say people crave a Bloody Mary when you're on an airplane because it's the umami flavor and that extra salty factor that satiates you. Now, personally, I would rather fly Emirates and opt for a tenderloin with caviar, and it is on the menu, by the way. So next time you're flying foodies, you will know that Emirates would definitely serve you well. Now, second on our food news update this week, um, the food companies will not have to disclose whether their products include genetically modified ingredients under legislation that was passed by the House this past Thursday. Did you know? Well, the legislation prevents states from requiring package labels to indicate the presence of genetically modified organisms or GMOs. So the state can no longer restrict the GMO label. And therefore, you know now that all of the products you buy, and especially the packaged food products, must read GMOs. Now, I always suggest that you look for companies that have the big N-O in front of the word GMO, because those are the companies that produce clean and natural foods, and they want to boast about their good practices. So they should be proud of it, and we should be too. And then you should know that an English farmer has spent the last 20 years working on cultivating an onion that is no cry, and he's done it. Right now, the no cry onion is only sold in the UK, but we hope that they will be available in the US by the end of the year. And I really do believe that that proves that technology is fabulous, isn't it? Oh, there is so much to learn and so much to eat. So I hope you'll stay tuned for more delicious conversation. Do not touch your dial, please, because there is lots more wonderful inspiration coming up in your radio. Candice Kumai, a longtime friend of mine, in fact, the chef, author, and TV host, is sharing her new cookbook entitled Clean Green Eats, and she is all about living well. Wait till you hear what she's eating lately. Plus, he is uh, truly my wine guru and a wine expert well-respected in the field. I'm proud to call him my husband, Craig Bennett, and we're dishing together on the Oregon Wine Trail. Plus, the YouTube sensation that is Manchi is talking Korean food. She's a blast, so you must stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the... Conversation continues. Savor the flavor and stay tuned. I'm feeding your insatiable appetite with more right after this. where culinary information abounds. Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio, a longtime friend has come back to grace this show, and I am truly delighted. She has no doubt brought herself to great success, and you have loved her as the classically trained chef, best-selling author, and health journalist that she is. Candice Kumai has come a long way from her time working in Ritz-Carlton kitchens to a regular judge on Iron Chef America and beat Bobby Flay. She's also a regular contributor on E! News and the Dr. Oz Show, and you know her cookbooks, Clean Green Drinks, Pretty Delicious, Cook Yourself Thin, and the new release, Clean Green Eats. She is, I will say, the 
ultimate epitome of the image of health. And she's all about whole food meals. And she's proof that you can live a cleaner, greener lifestyle with natural, low sugar, nutrient dense ingredients. So I begged her to come and teach me how so that I could share her new cookbook release with you. She is Candice Kumai and she joins us live and I am delighted. It's been way too long. How are you, my friend? I'm great. Wow, what an (laughs) intro. Oh, lady, that was amazing. Well, you deserve <laughs> it. You come a long way, hon. Let me tell you. Oh, There's thanks. No I know it's been a really long time, and I, I was just we were chatting right before this, and I thought it was really funny that Chef Rob Wilson, my original exec chef when I was just a line cook ten years ago, now I think it was, mm. they told me about you, and they said, you know, you should really follow. This amazing woman named Chef Jamie Gwen. Oh, that's very Just kind. like, you know, what you want to do. And they hmm. showed me your book. And I was like, wow, that is amazing. Wow. Thank and then, you. lo and behold, our paths crossed not once, not twice, but several times that's over the true. last span of, it's probably been like seven, eight years now. Mm-hmm. And it kind of is crazy, right? It's like the universe really does next the good one. Oh, I I agree with you. Thank you. I'll I'll take the compliment of a good one and you too. No, but it's true. I mean, we come back together because we share common passions, but I think we also have that um, you know, uh go get 'em girl bond. And I really appreciate the fact that you've run with your dreams and um and always been passionate. There is something to be said, Candace, for the way you eat. And I've always thought of this looking at you is because you really do shine from the inside out. And I've watched you eat and we've eaten together uh, before and you're always satisfied and satiated. And I think if that's what clean green eating is, then even if I could incorporate a little more than I do already into my diet, uh, there, there's something we can all learn from you. Yeah, I mean, I remember eating ravioli with you on set. Oh, that's the right. <laughs> I was like, where is this from? That's right. And we were like cracking up about it later because it was just regular old ravioli, but we, we were like, wow, it's amazing when you have the real thing, though. You are just, you are satiated, and that's a big thing that we talk about now in Clean Green Eats, and we also really love good, healthy fats, and that's another thing that I think we've had wrong for all these years. Um, we thought the fat was bad and that, you know, you couldn't have anything unless it was fat-free and processed and in a shiny box. And I think Clean Green Eats is just about eating real foods. And as a California girl also at heart, even though I'm in New York now, the avocado is a prime example of a fresh, you know, it's fresh produce that Mother Nature intended for our consumption. So I eat an avocado just about every day and it's, the monounsaturated good fats that keep me satiated. I love a, a lot of ethnic and especially Asian-inspired ingredients. Talk to us about what you're cooking with now. I mean, I'd love to delve deep into the recipes and everyone's going to want to bring Clean Green Eats, the cookbook, into their own kitchen and, and learn uh, and master new recipes that will become their own. But as far as the green movement, the health movement that you are no doubt the spokesperson for, what should we know about tahini paste, quinoa, is kale still hot? So I think the ingredients to look out for nowadays are, we were just talking about this, like there's so many spices and herbs that 
they're not new. They weren't created from a marketing team and in a chemical lab. They're brand. They've always been around, and they're you know from the Middle East, like sumac or zatar. Um, and then there are other amazing Japanese spices I love sharing with. I love my heritage. My mom's Japanese. My father's Polish-American. So I love sharing um, ingredients like togarashi or gomabura, which is uh, roasted or toasted sesame oil that's very dark in color, rich in flavor. And I also love, you know, playing with things like hijiki or arame, which is seaweed. Yes. I think you're going to see a blast in fermented foods because of the incredible benefits that they have for the microbiome in your stomach, uh, which can help with overall health um, in immunity-boosting digestion and can even help to keep your skin glowing and radiant. If we um, eat more kimchi? You can. You just have to make sure that you don't have a hot date afterwards. Right. <laughs> and maybe you have it together, you know, but that that's the fun part about food. It's like, it's all a great experience. That's and true. cooking for yourself, cooking for each other, nourishment, that's what you want to get from real food. Okay, so then let's explain and define real food in your terms. And I'll use a recipe as um, the uh, the opportunity to define it. The example of green granola bars is like Candice Kumai to me all rolled up in one. Okay, so I know that you believe and um, we know here in America, literally, we must cut down on sugar. But you still have this sweet satiation. You have all the goodness of almonds and pepitas and coconut and flaxseed and sesame and dried cherries. And then the wet ingredients come together. And maybe you'll talk us through this sugar substitute. But this is not processed junk. This is good for you, but craveable snack food. Absolutely. And, and the key there is, is that it tastes as good as it looks and it's as good for you as it tastes. So it's an incredible, Clean Green Eats was written um, with the mindset of what are foods that are really unique that I would eat every day that I know, you know, the average New Yorker or I'm from Carlsbad, California, right by you. What would I still want to eat that's craveable every day? And we know, like, most of us are sugar addicts, including myself. Mm -hmm. And I was raised on it because we all were. That's all we knew, and that was all that was in our food. Um, And I say food as in quote-unquote food. So what I think the biggest thing to realize is that everything that goes into that recipe for granola bars is real. Um, I will end on this. There is a wonderful... Um, quote by you uh, at the beginning of the book that I really believe says it all. It says, beautiful women don't diet. Beautiful women learn to cook. Pass it on. I think that should be your motto. I think that is really beautifully said. And there's a, a wonderful introduction on how to eat again, how Thomas Edison was quoted as saying that the doctor of the future will give no medicine, but it will all be about diet and um, the prevention of disease. And we have to start with ourselves. And you are um, the consummate reminder of that lesson. And your book inspired me. And I am immensely proud of all of your success 
from the fact that people still talk about you as the youngest chef to compete on um, Bravo's Top Chef. You have come a long way, baby. And um, I am, I'm thrilled and proud of you. And I'm grateful that our friendship has continued. And I um, am very excited uh, to support the new book. It is called Clean Green Eats. And she is my friend Candice Kumai. And you can learn more about her love for avocados and all the delicious things she's cooking and where on every hot channel you can find her like E! News's um, uh, health commentary and all that good stuff. TLC2, Lifetime as well, at CandiceKumai.com. Learn more. C-A-N-D-I-C-E-K-U-M-A-I.com. Okay, it's been too long since you've been here, so you'll come back soon, I hope. Candice? Yes. Okay. And thank you yes, for the course. incredible support, Jamie. You're Most so certainly. kind. Most I'm certainly. very grateful. I hope to see you in New York soon. As the delicious conversation continues... Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Gosh, I love what I do. Stay tuned. There's more. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, soaking your palate and dishing up culinary dreams. This is your Cork Report. I'm glad to welcome back as well a 25-year veteran of the wine industry to the show, whom is also my husband. Yes. Yes, he is. Uh, he worked his way up the ranks in blue chip restaurants, and my husband, Craig Bennett, was the executive vice president of Chalk Hill Winery. Currently, he is the proprietor of Seize the Vine, a passionate wine brokerage firm where he develops national wine and spirit brands. He's also my wine guru. So if you ever need a wine question answered, Everyone just goes to him. No, I'm nervous. <laughs> no. And so we've been talking over the past few weeks about the new AVAs and the developing regions and areas uh, and wine growing nations and places. And Oregon has no doubt been on my radar. And so we thought we would dish Absolutely. on the beauty that is Oregon, a region, uh, a wine region specifically, that has become tantamount with high quality wines and rightfully so because the Willamette Valley in the last decade honey yes. has seen an extraordinary increase in both production and accolades right eclectic styles um, really sort of defying expectations so um, give us the the lowdown on the Oregon wine scene please I would love to before we dive in yes I would love to also point out that not only is Oregon a fantastic and beautiful place with beautiful people, yes. but also a lot of people don't realize that they make and produce more hazelnut than yes. anybody else in the country, more Christmas trees, more peppermint, Who and knew? we could go on and on. Okay, now we so can dive into the wine. We can, but I want to go back to food for a minute because you know that that's always paramount to me. Not only known for hazelnuts in Oregon, but we know, of course... King salmon, Correct. right? And then berries galore, like good berries, like hard to find Olala berry. Loganberry, blueberry, boysenberry, yes. raspberry, yes. Okay, so does it all seep into the wine? Because the terroir in Oregon is what is most often touted. It's interesting because it is often touted, and it's true. 
you started off talking about the Willamette Valley and Willamette Valley, you go directly south from Portland and it goes for more than a hundred miles. And in that particular region, everybody knows uh, Oregon for Pinot, but there are other varietals that are grown. And I will tell you right now, Pinot Gris is mm-hmm. extraordinarily hot. Pinot Blanc is also, and both of those happen to be sisters or related to Pinot Noir, right. only white. And also it's a, it's a chef's dream. And the culinary mm-hmm. scene right now in Portland not only has gentrified, but it is actually super fun to visit. Yeah, and, and it's hotter than it's ever been in its history. There are a couple things that we've talked about of late that I think are really interesting. One, you talk about wine tasting in Oregon or going to the wine country, the wine regions in Oregon, and how easily accessible they are. It's not like you have to travel far from the inner city, right? It's exactly right. It's, it's, it's literally right outside of Portland. It's amazing to me, the close proximity. And then the other is a restaurant in Portland that made Savour Magazine's number one placement for the top restaurants across the country, right? It's and you've Higgins. Higgins. And you've been there, and I'm dying to go there. It's absolutely delicious. They also, uh, it's definitely farm to table. They grow their own vegetables. They right. take care of their own farms, et cetera, and it's fantastic. I think it's worth noting, how did Oregon get going this quickly? Because, yes, they had several wineries back during Prohibition, mm-hmm. pre-Prohibition, but then after... Since 1961, they've taken off. It's been an absolutely amazing story. And there's actually two gentlemen, a gentleman named Mr. Summer and another name named Mr. Lett. Uh, Mr. Lett owns Erie Winery. And everybody remembers in Napa Valley when, when the Paris tasting went on. And during the Paris tasting, it reinvented Napa as being a worldwide scene with worldwide quality. Well, they did the same thing in Burgundy. And the first time when they did it in 1979, uh, Mr. Lett finished third. Domaine Druin, who happens to be probably one of the most famous wineries in yes. Burgundy, yeah, and also uh, now in Oregon, uh, did another challenge in 1980, and this time he finished second. That launched wow. the entire o- Oregon wine scene out on an outrageous style at this point. And I think that if you're going to compare anything worldwide to Burgundy, it's going to be Oregon Pinot. Okay, is that because of the maritime climate? Is that because it's a moderate climate? with warm weather during the day and very cool nights, which adds to the acidity, right? You get the cooler temperatures that roll in from the Pacific Ocean. And that, we know, makes for really gorgeous Pinot Noir, right? That's exactly correct. I would add to that that they do get 40 inches plus or minus rain per year, which is a lot. Yes. However, most of the vineyards in the Willamette Valley, using them as an example, uh, do not plant their vineyards on the valley floor, they plant them a little bit higher. And really what they worry about most is frost. And mm. the, they have been able to overcome that. And also with the rainfall that they have there, the rain generally occurs more towards winter. And in the winter time, the vines are dormant. So it's kind of perfect growing for Conditions. the Burgundian, Burgundian varietals. Yeah, Right. Baby, we need to take a quick break. I can say that because he's my husband. More... With Craig Bennett, wine guru, and me, Chef Jamie Gwen, and you, just after this.
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, dishing with my husband, wine expert Craig Bennett. And we are dishing on the Oregon Wine Trail. Talk about, if you would, the uh, the flavor profile, the nose, what we can expect on the palate when it comes to Oregon Pinot Noir. And start this way, if you would, and complete the sentence. If you are a blank wine lover, then you will love Oregon wines. If you love sophisticated, gentle, beautiful, layered Pinot Noir. Like sexy Pinot Noir. Absolutely sexy Pinot Noir, like you. Like you. You will definitely have (laughs) the most wonderful wines. I will tell you this. It's amazing to me the patience that Oregon in general has with Pinot. And I think that what it attracts is, and when I say patience, I mean it is very difficult growing conditions. It it is it takes a very certain kind of soul to grow Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. But if you're patient, you could have some of the most beautiful wines anywhere, as we all know. There, on the other side of it too, is it attracts some of the most artsy, fun, interesting people around, whether they came from Davis, whether they didn't go to Davis, whether they came and they're ex-doctors or artists or anything else. Oregon accepts people from all over. Mm. And they generally just have a passion for fine wine, texture, and beautiful flavors. Yeah. And by the way, we know that um, eccentric, creative beings tend to make glorious wine. That's exactly just, right. Just a little history. And chefs. And chefs that you and I uh, can can uh, let our minds wander with. Um, there is a, an international Pinot Festival. Correct. In Oregon that you've been to. Yes. That I'm dying to go to. And... I know that for those that haven't been, uh, my listeners want to know about it. So give us the gist of it. You said it was outrageous. I think it was one of the most fun things I've ever done in my wine career. And really? it sells out extremely quick. You've done a lot of things. I'm sure you can um, post a link or so forth for your listeners that are on there. But I will tell you, the one of the most incredible things about it, uh, not just the, the beautiful wines and the opportunity to find out people's stories from small all the way to the more popular, larger brands that are out, but also on the last night that's there is the pairings from not only from Oregon, but they also invite California wineries, et cetera, uh, with the King Salmon. See, it's the it's right tied in with the release of the King Salmon season, yes. right? And so you just get a twofer, right? You get the best Pinot Noir and beautiful, fresh-caught King Salmon. Which, by the way, I happen to appreciate Oregonians for the fact that they broke the wine rule you know that you're supposed to drink white with fish. I think you're supposed to drink what you like with what you like. But it is Pinot Noir that, you know, broke the glass ceiling on white wine with seafood. Exactly. And it's a brilliant pairing. Well, the other thing, too, is is you being certified psalm and also being a chef. There's an interesting thing that goes on. And oftentimes there they go against patterns and cycles. Right, right now not only are a lot of varietals being grown and Riesling's coming back or Virgin Meter's coming back, a lot of different varietals that are there, but a lot of these chefs are not afraid to cook with things that a lot of other chefs are afraid to cook with, whether it's Mm. asparagus or different flavors that are there. That's one state that pioneers profiles, period. They love it. 
He is my wine guru, as I said, but I'll lend him to you, or at least his knowledge, for just a bit. Uh, my husband, Craig Bennett, the 25-year veteran of the wine industry, here to dish on what we share around the dinner table in your radio. So in celebration of Oregon's new era of grape diversity, we raise a glass of Pinot Noir to you. Thank you, honey. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Pleasure. There's more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. Don't go away. Fresh ideas in your radio every Sunday. Chef Jamie Gwen, welcome back. I'd like you to meet Manchi. She is not a professional chef, and she didn't go to culinary school, in fact. Um, she's never even worked in a restaurant. But this woman has some serious fans. Manchi uses videos to translate Korean cuisine to a wide and varied audience. And she has become an internet sensation as her videos posted on YouTube have won the admiration of home cooks and chefs alike. It's her technique, her good cheer, and the fact that she is sharing certainly a widely trend-setting culture and cuisine, and that is Real Korean Cooking. And her first cookbook has just released. It is entitled Manchi's Real Korean Cooking, Authentic Dishes for the Home Cook. She is demystifying Asian home cooking and our love for bibimbap and bulogi and kimchi and oh all of the best korean fried chicken you've ever had and i am delighted to have manchi join us live and in your radio hi manchi hi jamie thank you for having me <laughs> of course um, talk about your rise as an internet sensation manchi i know you love to cook but i i think it's your personality that engages everyone and then the idea that they can make the korean foods they know and love at home of course follows suit oh i'm you know i never expected that you know i would make a, i would be a cookbook author like this but i love cooking and also my cooking is for my family so always uh, like a home cooked food. I mean, I always make the delicious Korean uh, food for my family and friends sometimes. Um, but uh, 2007, first time I posted my YouTube video, and then there was a spicy stir fry squid, and then I was so surprised because so many people gave me the you know, good response right next day. They mm. subscribed to me. Ever since then, they asked me my next video. So and also they have a lot of question about that you know each ingredient. So I I needed there something like that in my website. So website on the <laughs> on the internet. So, right. Uh, I made my website. So, so right after my you know video uh, posting, and then ever since then since 2007 I'm doing keep doing what I'm doing, and then now already past eight years past. Yeah, and so I'm really, really uh, happy about this uh, situation yes. because this is my full-time job, and, <laughs> and then I could uh, I could quit my real job, yeah. and then I'll just uh, focus on my you know the, this YouTube and my running my website. Manchi, yeah. talk to us about your most requested recipe. I love that you call it KFC. That stands for Korean Fried Chicken, right? Yeah. Actually, my readers made the name. <laughs> so they, they made this KFC, Korean Fried Chicken. 
And I have two fried Korean fried chicken recipe on my website. This is super popular. You know, funny thing is they're more popular than Korean kimchi. So Korean fried chicken is number one. Number two is, you know, kimchi, kimchi recipe. Hmm. So Korean fried chicken is uh, sometimes I'm so like uh, some of my readers, they make this, uh, you know, Korean fried chicken. And then, you know, Korean, chi- Korean fried chicken is uh, you, uh, my method is a double fry. Double when fried. you double fry, yes. it makes really crunchy. Oh. First batch usually turn out a little soggy just around 10 minutes later. It, does, it looks like really crunchy, but 10 minutes later, it looks, you know, the, it, it goes soggy. Yeah, but that's why I use a second time, always a double fry. Oh. And then my readers, everybody knows now why they have to double fry. Right. And then crunchy, crunchy, make it like a really rock. And then I add some Korean spicy kind of sweet, a little uh, shiny kind of sauce, I make it. So I have a two kind of seasoned Korean fried chicken mm. recipe. And then just a super popular. Yeah, sweet, sour, spicy, so delicious. Yes. It's, uh, it's now like almost 3 million views. Wow. Uh, wow. Congratu- yeah, congratulations. That's quite <laughs> incredible. You. Your millions of fans call you the Julia Child of Korean cooking. Um, and there is no doubt you are a, a phenomenon. Uh, and we love uh, that you have grown um, such a following and great success and that you are sharing the the diversity of Korean cooking right from your own kitchen. Um, the cookbook is really chock full of wonderful Korean inspiration. And it is called Manchi's Real Korean Cooking. Her name is spelled M-A-A-N-G-C-H-I. And of course, you can learn more and follow her videos so that you too can master Korean cuisine at manchi.com. Continued success to you, Manchi. Thank you for sharing your Korean style. Thank you so much. So that brings us to the end of another hour that I hope feeds your soul. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram along with Pinterest as well, at Chef Jamie Gwen. And don't worry, if you just recently fell in love with this show, I'm really grateful that you listen, and you can find podcasts of previous shows that hopefully will share gastronomic inspiration and creative advice on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. Today is National Ice Cream Sandwich Day. Hooray! So if you want to observe, make your own, or buy a box, but better yet, why not steal this recipe for mini vanilla wafer ice cream sandwiches? I think they're the perfect quick and easy frozen cookie treat. Just two ingredients, and you know I love super simple recipes, and just about five minutes are all you need. And then just a few bowls of your favorite toppings and a few friends, and you are ready to party. You'll need a box of vanilla wafer cookies and your favorite ice cream or frozen yogurt, any flavor. What I suggest you do is find a small ice cream scoop or a teaspoon and just put a teaspoon or two of ice cream on top of one vanilla wafer, top it with another cookie, and then roll the edges in your favorite toppings, sprinkles, mini chocolate chips, chopped pecans, toasted almonds, ooh, better yet, smoked almonds, toasted coconut. They'll all adhere to the ice cream. And then freeze those little mini ice cream sandwiches for at least 30 minutes. Then you can munch 
and enjoy. I will post my tribute to National Ice Cream Sandwich Day once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope that you will meet me here next Sunday when the delicious conversation continues. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well,